Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year, we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. With that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can be here. And as John said earlier, may your Holy Spirit be here. You are welcome here. We encourage you to be here. We pray, that, Lord, that there are many hearts that have come today in many different states. We pray that you will meet them right here. And as the speaker speaks, we know that she's got a word from you. And may our hearts be open, and may we rejoice in victory and, re- and lay our knees out to you, Lord, even this morning. And we pray all these precious things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you for having us. Uh, I feel like every person we've met has asked us, how is Tulsa, Oklahoma? It's been wonderful. It's been delightful. My husband and I got to walk over the city tomorrow, uh, yesterday. We were definitely New Yorkers. We were like, let's go walk for four hours. Um, so we walked all the way to the gathering place and another mile past that from downtown. So it's just been lovely to be here with you all. And you've been so warm and welcoming and friendly And we figured out very quickly that every person on the bike path was going to greet us. So we prepared for the next person to greet us. In New York, it's like a, it's like, I acknowledge you, you know, but here it was like, hi, how are you doing? We're like, okay. So I think one of the last ones, Serge is like, I'm going to beat them to it. He's like, hi. (laughs) So anyways, it's been, it's been great to be here in Tulsa, Oklahoma with you. And I appreciate you having a New Englander in your midst. Um, So today we're going to talk through uh, this third beatitude. And just by way of reminder, or maybe if you haven't been able to be with us the last couple weeks, um, the beatitudes sort of start out with Jesus. He's begun his ministry, right? He's he's been baptized. He's starting to sort of collect disciples, although he hasn't really chosen who's going to be his disciples yet. Um, And he goes up onto a mountain and everyone sits and he begins to speak. And for Matthew, this is kind of a Sinai moment, right? This is kind of a a moment where Jesus, as this prophet, as a speaker, as we're going to discover as we go through Matthew, as the Son of God, is going to sit down, is going to give this this sort of proclamation. And so this is a a kingdom proclamation, the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes. It's It's an announcement that a new empire has come that's different from the Romans. And Jesus is inviting people to pledge their allegiance to this new kingdom, this new empire. And this is going to be an announcement of who's going to benefit from this kingdom, right? Who's blessed? Who is this good news that this kingdom is in their midst? Um, But for, maybe sometimes we miss this, but for Jesus, he's not giving this as like a prophet or a messenger, like maybe a messenger going before a king announcing a kingdom. As we move into the Sermon on the Mount, we start to realize that Jesus is the one making up the laws of this kingdom, right? He's actually the king giving the announcement of who's going to be in the kingdom, who's going to benefit from the kingdom, and he's doing that as the one who's the king. So he's the benefactor and who are going to be the beneficiaries. But the other thing to keep in mind as we go through, uh, especially the Beatitudes, is that Jesus is not only saying who's going to benefit from the kingdom, but he's actually going to embody the perfect person in this, right? He's going to be the example of somebody who is poor in spirit, 
who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, right? So he's both the benefactor and the one who actually enables it all to come. So this is not a king who's sitting on a throne who's sort of saying to his subjects, like, do these things, right? He's actually going to embody the kingdom, inaugurate the kingdom through living out its principles and its laws, and then inviting people to join him in that. And so even as we look back on the last two weeks, right, this idea of blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus is actually the perfect example of one who is poor in spirit. Philippians 2 says that, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, right? And we also have this scene in his baptism, right, that he, he waits to start his ministry until the Holy Spirit has rested upon him. Now, that's very confusing for us as people trying to understand the Trinity, like, okay, but Jesus is still fully God while he's also fully man. But the point is, is that in that moment, we see the Father approving of the Son, Right? And we see the Spirit resting upon the Son, and that's when he goes out into ministry. So he has this sense of dependence on the Holy Spirit. He models poverty of spirit for us. He's also the one who mourns. Right? Maybe the first verse that you ever memorized in Sunday school was Jesus wept. Right? At least that was for me, because I was like, yes, now we get the star and the candy, and I did a memory verse. Right? So that's what we, we usually think about. But Isaiah 53, 5 also says that, that this Messiah would be a man of sorrow acquainted with grief, like from one whom people hide their faces. So one of his distinguishing markers is he's a man of sorrows, that he mourns. And as we're going to see today, he's also the epitome of one who is meek. So as you continue on through this series together as a church, I want to encourage you that each time you hear one of these Beatitudes read, that not only do you think about who is a beneficiary of the kingdom, but I also want you to ask yourself, how does Jesus perfectly embody this characteristic? How is it that actually the kingdom comes about because he hungers and thirsts for righteousness, because he's persecuted for righteousness' sake? So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to look at both of these sort of halves of the beatitude. We're going to talk about this sort of beneficiary idea of who are the meek and why is it important that they will inherit the earth. And then the second half of the sermon, we're going to look about, just talk, talk about why it's good news that Jesus is actually meek, why that's actually really exciting good news for us. So I've just told you where we're going to go. I was told very early on that you should always tell everybody what you're going to teach before you teach it. So now you know what we're going to talk about. And if at some point in the sermon, the Holy Spirit says something to you and you kind of get distracted and zone out, well, now you can catch back up because you know where we're going with the sermon. Okay, so part one, let's talk about who are the meek. So the meek, uh, this word is a, a Greek word, pros, and it means a lot of times in English it gets translated as gentleness, mildness, or meekness. It's used to translate the Hebrew word anah or anav, which means poor or humble. But a lot of the commentaries and sort of the Bible dictionaries will tell you that it's actually sort of um, a misreading when you only read it as gentle and mild and meek. And that's because in the English language, we typically think of those words as a sign of weakness. But this word doesn't have that meaning. Pros actually means reserved or controlled strength. So you could act, but you choose to be gentle, right? You choose to be mild. You choose to be meek. And this becomes particularly clear as we look at the three other times that this word shows up in the New Testament. So we, first we have it here in the Beatitudes. The next case is in Matthew eleven twenty nine, And this is Jesus talking about himself. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am pros, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Right? So Jesus isn't weak here. He's saying, I'm going to actually gently lead you, and I'm going to gently teach you. 
Matthew 21, 5, this is said about Jesus, right? This is Matthew quoting a text in Zechariah 9, 9. And this is when Jesus is entering the city uh, right before he's going to die on Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, 5 reads, Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle or meek and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So again, this is used to translate that text in Zechariah 9, 9. And it doesn't mean that he's coming in weak, right? It means that he comes in gently, mild, right? Reserved control of strength. That's what this word meek means here. I think it becomes even more clear when we read the last occurrence of this, is this is in 1 Peter 3, 4. And this is about Sarah, and it's instruction to wives to be like Sarah. It says, rather, it should be your inner self, this is where beauty should come from. It's from your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great strength in God's sight. Now, as a child, I always thought this was really funny because Sarah is definitely not someone you describe as gentle or quiet. Um, so it's funny to say that we should be like her. But when you begin to see that over time, Sarah has reserved or controlled strength, that she doesn't always say the thing that's obvious, that she doesn't always like argue for her own solution, then we begin to understand what meekness means, right? It's, it's this idea of reserved or controlled strength. Okay, so that's who the meek are, right? And this idea of blessing means that God's going to extend his favor towards this particular group of people, and what they're going to get in response in the kingdom is they're going to inherit the earth. Now, this word inherit in the Greek, um, I've put the word up again behind me, it means to be an heir who is designated by birth or by choice. It's land that is allotted or the casting of lots. Now, what's important here is that this is not, when we say inheriting the land, this isn't buying the land. This isn't conquering the land. This isn't renting the land. The word inheritance means that I receive something and now I own it, right? So I didn't have to strive for this. I didn't have to manipulate for this. I didn't have to work really hard for this, right? You can definitely always have like a child who just inherits a piece of land. One of our next door neighbors, her grandfather passed away and she inherited a farm at like the age of six, right? She was just given land because it passed down through her family. She didn't have to do anything to earn it, but now she owns it. And this is actually a common theme in the New Testament. We're going to see this word inherit or inheritance 18 other times in the New Testament. Although most of the time it's going to refer to eternal life, the kingdom, a name, salvation, or blessing, all things. This is the only time we're told it's about inheriting land. And so we could ask, well, why, why say that you're going to inherit land? Why didn't Jesus just say, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit eternal life? What did his original audience think when they heard these words? That's always a great question to ask when studying scripture, right? We want to start sort of the appropriate hermeneutic response is to say, okay, what did the first listeners think this meant? And then once we understand that, then we move towards application in our own life. Okay, so what did they think? Well, two things would have come to mind when they heard these words. The first thing is that they actually would already know this phrase because Jesus is quoting Psalm 37, verse 11 which reads, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So when the first audience hears this, they know, oh, this is from Psalm 37, 11. Now, we might sort of wonder what that means, but they're coming from an oral culture, right? You and I, mostly we remember Bible verses because we see it visually or because maybe we had to memorize some section of it, or sometimes we know part of the phrase, but we have no idea what book of the Bible it comes from. Right? But you're talking about an oral culture where everything is chanted and sung and memorized in context. It would be like if I sang, amazing grace, you could all finish the next line. 
So that same thing's happening for his first audience. When he quotes Psalm 3711, the rest of the text is going to appear in their mind, especially because, you know, the, uh, the Psalms were sung liturgically, right? So it's, they can hear the rest of it in their mind. So to understand this passage, first we have to go to Psalm 37. So if you were to open this up in your Bibles, you would see that actually Psalm 37 has a very common theme that runs throughout. And we're really told this in the first couple verses in which we're told that essentially the wicked seem to be prospering in the land, but the Lord is going to come and he's going to change this and reverse this. And this is the theme that runs throughout. It's all about, Psalm 37 is all about who gets to dwell in the land and who's going to get to inherit the land. So let me give you some of the highlights from this text. So in Psalm 37, verses 9 through 11, it reads, For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Verses 10 to 11, A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Going down to verse 18, The blameless spend their days on the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. Verse 22, those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, but those he curses will be destroyed. Verse 27, turn from evil and do good, then you will dwell in the land forever. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. And finally, verse 34, hope in the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. So in this psalm, it's all about who's going to inherit the land. Is it going to be the wicked and the unrighteous who seem to be prospering right now, who seem to own a lot of land? Or is it going to be this group that's choosing to dwell in the land and to trust in the Lord, right? They're turning away from evil and they're doing good. They're hoping in the Lord. They're meek. They're righteous. And the good news about Psalm 37 is God saying that, yeah, there's going to be a day when God's going to reverse what's happening in that land and the wicked and are going to be cursed, are going to be sent away. God's going to remove them. And it's actually the meek, those who hope in the Lord, those who are righteous, those who trust in him, who will actually inherit the land. In some ways, this is similar to a parable Jesus is going to give, give later on, um, in which he, in Matthew 13, in which he talks about um, a farmer who scatters seed in his field, and then the night, there's going to be the enemy who's going to sow all of the weeds. And then they start to grow up, and the angels say to the Lord, like, there's weeds. Like, shouldn't we weed them out? And God says, no, 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 wait till the right time where they've all sort of borne their fruit, and then we're going to come in and we're going to weed, and then finally the wheat will be taken into the barn. So it's the same idea that in the land, there's the meek and the righteous and those who are trusting in the Lord, but then they're surrounded by the wicked who seem to be prospering. And God's giving them sort of this challenge, this encouragement to say, no, no, no wait, trust in the Lord. Like, he is going to actually remove the wicked, and he's going to give you the land that you long for. So Jesus' first audience, this is what's in their mind when they hear, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. They understand that Jesus is saying that it's the righteous, the holy people who trust in God and who obey him, those who don't fret or become despondent when the wicked are prospering, those who don't take matters into their own hands, it's those who are going to inherit the land. Now, as they're thinking this, they're going to begin to realize they're living Psalm 37. Because at that point in time, in first century um, Palestine, Israel, right, it was conquered by the Romans. So they're living with the wicked in their midst. 
the Romans, the Greeks are worshiping foreign gods. They're overly taxing the people. If, any, if there's sort of any uprising, they're slaughtering them and hanging them on crosses, right? And the Jewish people are sort of hanging on by a thread, right, hoping they can continue to worship in the temple, but always being afraid that the Romans will shut that down. Right, so they're living in a land where the wicked are prospering, and they don't know how to respond to this. And so, of course, people are taking different solutions into their own hands. Right? There are some at the time who've decided, you know what, if we can't beat them, let's join them. Like, let's make the best of this. So they're becoming tax collectors, or they're getting into political alliances with the Romans. They're kind of like, well, everyone else might suffer, but at least I'm going to be okay when the wicked prosper. Then there's other groups, like the Pharisees, who are saying, hey, the only way to survive is sort of like strict religious observance, right? We're going to, every single law, we're going to take it to the extreme. And the reason they're doing that is they're hoping that, like, if we're just righteous enough, maybe God will come back. Maybe if we, if we do enough things, God will finally get rid of the wicked. And then, of course, there's a third group, the zealots, who are just like, we're going to do uprisings, right? We're going to use violence and we're going to throw out the Romans. And this is the way for us to once again have peace in our land. But Jesus is saying in the midst of this that, no, 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 it's not the violent. It's not the manipulators. It's not the religiously observant who are going to inherit the land, but it's the meek. It's those who trust God, who are not taking things into their own hands. In a sense, he's advocating for this idea of nonviolence, of restrained, controlled resistance. And this isn't weakness, right? Jesus is going to still speak truth to power. He's still going to cast out demons. He's going to perform miracles. He even overthrows some, some uh, tables in the temple and releases all the animals. But if you'll notice, nobody actually gets injured during that. So he's still going to act in these ways, but he's not moving towards taking things into his own hands. He's actually demonstrating meekness for us. Scott McKnight says it this way. Here, in the Beatitudes, meekness is framed over against wrath Anger, violence, acquisitiveness, rapaciousness, theft, violent takeovers, and brutal reclamations of property. The meek are unlike the zealots who use violence to seize the land. The meek choose to absorb unjust conditions in a form of nonviolent, non-retaliatory resistance that creates a calm, countercultural community of love, justice, and peace. You could say the same thing, right? That the meek are not choosing to use political or financial allegiances to move forward. So why is this actually good news that this group of people will inherit the earth? Why is inheriting earth good news? Well, the reason Psalm 37 is all about land, right, and the reason this is so important to the Jewish people is because for them, inheriting the land was connected to the Abrahamic covenant, right? God says to Abraham, you know, generations earlier, I've chosen you and I'm going to give you a land, and an inheritance, and I'm going to make your, your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through your descendants, all nations will be blessed. So God's, God's covenant with Abraham is linked to a particular piece of land. That same thing's going to happen with Isaac and Jacob. God's going to reinitiate this covenant with each of them and say, I promise you this land. And when the people go into slavery in Egypt, but then they're finally rescued, right, in the book of Exodus, God, what does he do? He brings them back into a land that he promises to them, and finally, that land's going to be divided up among the tribes and allotted each to them. In the book of Deuteronomy, we see this connection between the land and the covenant when God says that if you obey me and love me, then I'm going to give you peace in the land, and you're going to have rain in its season, and you're going to be prosperous. But if you disobey me and you turn to foreign gods, then the land is going to vomit you out. 
And actually, this is what happens to the Jewish people. For those of you who were around last year in this church, you studied through the whole Bible in a year. And so you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and the prophets. And, and you saw that for 70 years, the Jewish people were in exile until God fulfills his promise and he brings them back. But even when they return and when they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the city of Jerusalem, it's never the same again. They never really have peace in the land because first they're underneath the Persians and then the Greeks. And for a very short period in time, they have self-rule, but it's kind of a mess. And then eventually they end up with the Romans. And so in all of these cases, they're always a conquered people who live with the wicked in their midst. And yet what they long for is to have peace. What they long for is that the covenant promises of God would happen again in their generation. Scott McKnight again says this, We must wrap our minds around the Bible story for the first century Jew. Those to whom Jesus spoke didn't care two figs for owning Italy or Gaul. They simply wanted shalom in the land of Israel. The fundamental promise to Abraham and a promise that shapes everything about exile and return and hope and promise is dwelling in peace and holiness in the land God promised them. Or read Luke 1, 67 to 79, to see that Zechariah's idea of salvation is the elimination of enemies so Israel could dwell in the land and worship in the temple in peace and holiness. This is the right context. So this beatitude should be translated, for they will inherit the land, with a capital L. Even if we weren't... Uh, able to fully grasp what it was like to inherit land for them, we can certainly understand some of this through inheriting land ourselves in our modern American context. Because owning a piece of land in some way represents peace. It represents a way to provide for your family moving forward, to grow things out of the ground, and to say that you have a solid future. It's one reason that in New York we're so unstable because none of us can own land. Right? We have to rent all the time. And our rent can go up at any point in time and we can just lose our housing. Right? So to own, in New York, the closest we can get is like own an apartment, but you need like a million dollars to do that. So it's like owning something, right? Inheriting something, having security. And if we extend this out, really, then land represents having a home, having peace, having success, security, and rest. And that's what they longed for. And so to summarize, there was a longing for God to be king again and to rule the land, but this wasn't the current reality because the Romans were in charge. And so the question was, how were they going to respond to their current conditions? And if God did return and bring his kingdom, well, who would be eligible to come into God's kingdom and to inherit the land? And so the answer that Jesus gives in the first few Beatitudes is that it's the poor in spirit, those who trust in God and not their own righteousness, who will get the kingdom of heaven. It's those who mourn, who weep over the current state of affairs and recognize why they were sent into exile. It's these people who will be comforted, as Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort my people. And it's the meek, those who trust and wait on the Lord for his justice and his kingdom, and who don't seize the land in their own strength or manipulate towards it, right, or think they can earn it. It's they who will inherit the land. So this is where we can pause and I think ask some reflection questions of ourselves. Now that we kind of understand what this text meant, What does it mean for you and I? Well, the first thing is that we need to learn to trust God when the wicked prosper. That we need to become those people who hope in the Lord. That we're not frantic, that we're not fearful, that we learn to dwell in the land and trust that God will make things right in his own time. 
The second thing we can do is we can learn to trust God for our security, our peace, our prosperity, our success, all the things that land means. Right? Our tendency, especially in our current culture, is to strive and to gain and to conquer and to take right? and to brand ourselves and to move forward in life or maybe even to flex our strength and to show how great we are so we can move forward in life. But this is telling us that we are instead meant to have reserved, controlled strength, that we're meant to trust God, that he's the one who actually gives the land. He's the one who gives us peace that passes all understanding. He's the one who gives us security. And finally, we could ask ourselves that if God gives the land to the meek, to the holy, to the righteous, am I that kind of person? Am I a person who trusts the Lord? Or do I have a posture towards achieving success in my own means? Right? The scriptures say, the Israelites were, were known for saying, they trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the Lord our God. Right? What's the way that you, what's your posture towards inheriting something, towards gaining success and security? Is it trusting in the Lord, or is it achieving it through your bank account, through your network, through your connections? And likewise, what is your posture when life is really difficult? Are you meek? Do you reserve and control your strength and trust the Lord? Or do you sort of fall into one of those camps of the ancient Israelites, right? Like those who sort of go through political alliances and allegiances and say, oh, okay, okay, well, you know, I can at least gain when the wicked are prospering. Or maybe you've sort of had this shame mentality, like, wow, I just got to do more. I just got to prove that I'm a good person. And it's actually, it's all about my own righteousness. Or maybe you're like a zealot. You're just like, we're just going to take this. This is broken, it's interesting, when I, when I think about meekness in the midst of injustice, I'm reminded of the story of Martin Luther King and the way that he trained, especially teenagers, to do um, peaceful resistance sit-ins, to have a nonviolent approach. And one of the things that he would do is he would have students after school, they would have practice sit-ins. They'd sit on stools, and then people would come at them and yell every slur and awful word at them and spit at them and blow smoke in their face. Now, the reason they did that is because he knew if they didn't practice, they wouldn't be able to do it at the real time. Right? If they hadn't practiced in advance, they wouldn't be able to have controlled reserve strength. They would want to act out. But you know, part of the philosophy in the civil rights movement was nonviolent resistance, that it's the meek who inherit the earth. And so the idea was let's, let's train these young people, and then they can go into coffee shops, and they can sit there, and no matter what happens, they're going to be calm. And this is what the Lord is trying to teach us too, is that it's not that we are weak, it's that we trust in the Lord. We trust that he's gonna bring about his way and we don't have to strive and to take that. And so our response when the wicked prosper is not anger, it's not manipulation, it's not shame, right? It's trusting in the Lord. Okay, so now that we've looked at who are the meek and what does that look like and what's the good news of them inheriting a piece of land, now let's look at the really good news, which is that Jesus is the perfect meek one. Because sometimes when we look at the Beatitudes, we think, okay, that's great. I now have my homework list. Okay, I've got to just do this. But the great news about the Beatitudes is actually Jesus models these things for us. And so he invites us into the way to do that. Okay, so how does Jesus embody this Beatitude? As we read earlier, Jesus described himself as meek in Matthew eleven twenty nine when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle or meek and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. But what is Jesus saying here? Well, actually that word yoke isn't just um, a farming term. It was the way that a rabbi would talk about their interpretation of the law. So it was their way of living out the teachings. And so Jesus is saying, take my teachings upon you 
and learn from me. And you know what? I'm not going to be the kind of teacher that's scolding you and yelling at you, right? Jesus could have totally done that. He could have been like, I am the king of the universe. Bow down and repent. Right? But he doesn't do that. He actually goes along and invites people into the kingdom, right? He models for them his teachings and his laws, and he shows them how to live this way. And so one of the first ways that, that Jesus embodies meekness is the way that he leads us, right? It's the way that he corrects us and trains us and, and shows us the way to live. The second way that Jesus embodies meekness, this type of restrained strength, is the gentleness that Jesus takes in the way that he inaugurates his kingdom. We're told in his arrival to Jerusalem, again, quoting Zechariah 9.9, Matthew 21.5 reads, Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So for Matthew, Jesus is fulfilling this messianic prophecy. Now, it's a weird prophecy, right? Zechariah, when he's writing, the people have just returned from exile, and they're looking forward to when God's going to come as king. But it's a bizarre prophecy because what you'd expect is for the king to arrive on a horse, right, and to announce himself. And in fact, that's what Alexander the Great is going to do within those next generations before Jesus but after Zechariah. Alexander the Great was known for riding a particular horse. He actually loves his horse so much he names whole cities after his horse. And Alexander the Great would conquer whole areas of land. He was actually known for conquering more land than anyone else before him. And he would do that through battle and through military strength. And so this is an odd way for Jesus to inaugurate his kingdom. He rides into the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt and not a horse with children announcing him. And he doesn't come in. He doesn't level the city or bring in an army, right? He comes in meek into that city. And the whole next week, he's still going to do that. Right? He's going to speak truth to power. He's going to throw over tables. But in every case, it's actually reserved strength because as the God of the universe, he could have just shown up with a whole bunch of angels and told everybody that he was king. But he doesn't. He comes in in meekness. And we see this really clearly at the end in his death and the way that he brings about his kingdom. Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus, even in his trial and in his death, he's silent. He's like a lamb. He doesn't protest. When they're bringing false witnesses against him, it's not like he's like, guys, these people are lying, and I can tell you their entire life story. He could have easily done that, but he's silent before his shearers. And even while he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's in meekness that Jesus is going to bring about his kingdom. It's in reserved strength and control and gentleness that he's going to inaugurate his new kingdom. So why is this good news? Why is a meek king a good thing for us? Well, as we already talked about, the way of the world at that time was those like Alexander the Great or the Caesars who would take people into battle and hundreds and thousands of people would die so that that king could conquer a new land. But instead, Jesus is the only one who dies in this scenario. He, as the meek one, dies on behalf of his people so he can give them the kingdom. And so as a result, it's the meek one who inherits all of the earth. Psalm 2 says this about the Messiah. It says that the Lord will say to his king's son, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And this is what Jesus 
claims is true of him after his resurrection. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's in the way of meekness, right? It's in, it's in willingly going to his death that Jesus inherits all of the earth. And then number two, as the meek one, he's going to actually share his inheritance with the meek, with those who've trusted in the Lord. Isaiah 53 says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will be their, bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. So again, I'm reading all these prophecies so you know that this is the, the, the story that Jesus is coming out of. These are the references that he's making, right? These are the scriptures of his people. And this is what he's saying is that I am the meek one and I'm going to divide my inheritance after my death with my people. And over and over again, the New Testament is going to tell us that those who are disciples of Jesus receive an inheritance. We're even told that the Holy Spirit is like a seal guaranteeing our inheritance, so we could ask, well, why would I want to inherit the earth? Like, why is that a good inheritance? Well, in Revelations 21 and 22, we're told that once Jesus returns and he inaugurates his kingdom, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, is going to come down out of heaven to the earth, and God's going to dwell with his people. Where? On the earth. In the new Jerusalem. This is where we're going to live forever and ever in God's presence. And so Jesus inherits the earth, and then he gives us a portion of that inheritance so we can dwell in his midst. And then he's going to teach us his ways. He's going to, he'll have given us a new heart, right, through the Spirit, and he's going to walk us in his yoke. He's going to teach us his ways, his way of life, the way we can live in peace. And then as a result of that, we will finally experience true shalom on and in the earth. And God will finally dwell with his people. The hope of the entire scriptures, right? That we would live in a place of peace and like a garden with God walking in our midst, that we would have peace with one another. That's going to happen because Jesus chose to be meek and because he shared that with us. And this is so beautifully summarized in Micah 4, which reads, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, right? That idea of inheriting the land. And no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. I love that, right? That Micah 4 is already telling us what Revelations 21 and 22 are going to tell us as well. That Jesus is going to establish his kingdom on the earth, and there will be peace. 
and each of us will get our own fig tree to sit under. Now, I've never sat under a fig tree, but I imagine from what Mike is saying, it's going to be pretty good. And we'll never be afraid anymore. And there'll be no more violence, no more fighting, no more insecurity, no more striving, because kingship will be Jesus's. This is really good news. And it's really good news for us because you and I can learn to be meek because we follow the meek one, right? Because we know that actually we don't inherit the earth because somehow we've like become meek enough. We inherit the earth because he did, because he lived it perfectly and then he gives it to us. And so our job is just to become like him. It's to take his yoke upon us, right? Like two oxen and we walk with Jesus, and we learn to live the way that he's living. And we learn to control our strength and to hold it back because we're trusting in the Lord. Because we're not going to take things in our own power and strength. We're going to trust that the Lord's going to do it in us, through us, for his glory. And so I want to actually lead us in a time of response this morning. It's so important that we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers. That we actually allow the scriptures to take root in our heart. Uh, the Bible says that every time that the word is spoken, the word of God goes forth. It's like rain that falls onto the earth that's meant to bear a harvest. And so this actually wouldn't have been a good morning if we all just heard this. We're like, that was a great talk. And then we left and nothing changed, right? The, the word's supposed to change us. So I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come forward and um, some of the prayer team to come forward as well. And we're just going to enter into a time of responding to God's word. Because I trust that at some point this morning, the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart. That's what he does, right? He, he wants to make us more like Jesus. So I want to give us a chance to do that right now. So I want to encourage a few different types of response if we can. The first is for some of us, we might need to just repent. Maybe as we talked about that idea of, of trusting the Lord as opposed to striving, we're like, wow, this last week I, I really haven't trusted the Lord. When I've been in hard situations or when I've wanted greater security or success, I've actually kind of gone after it in my own strength. If that's true, I want to invite you to come forward and to repent. One of us would love to pray with you and to pray over you. And we can come to Jesus because he's meek and he wants to forgive you and to teach you. He wants to teach you how to trust the Lord this week. And so if you've struggled to walk in meekness, to walk in trust, I want to invite you to repent this morning. For others of us, Psalm 37 may have felt very real. We may feel like we're living in a place, in a world that's where the wicked prosper. And we're thinking, Lord, I don't know where my security is going to come from. I don't know where my success is going to come from. This is really hard. I'm in pain. In which case, I want to encourage you to come forward and let's just pray over that together. Jesus is, is mild, gentle. He wants to actually comfort, comfort his people. So he wants to just put new strength into you today, new encouragement into you today to, to remind you and to promise you that you will inherit the land because of him. So if that's true for you, we'd love to pray for those requests. And finally, for some of us, we just need to spend some time in extended worship. We just need to look at Jesus again and say, you're beautiful. You're worthy of praise. What a beautiful king and savior you are. And as you respond that way, I want to encourage you to just do that however you need to do that, to worship, to get on your knees, to raise your, to raise your hands. Just It's you pouring out your heart before Jesus and worshiping him. So I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. We're going to be over here uh, if anyone wants prayer. And I want to invite everybody to stand and pray over us as we go into this time.
And Father, we thank you for the scriptures that you've given to us. And thank you, Jesus, for the good news that you speak to our weary hearts, that we can trust you, that you want to lead us, and that we have a good inheritance in you. Spirit, right now as we respond, we just ask that you would allow the words of this scripture to go deep into our heart to bear much fruit, that we would be changed people today that we would be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but we would be transformed through renewing of our minds and our hearts. Spirit, do that work of making us into a people who are meek, just as our Savior is meek. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.